Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the time that we can gather together and to approach you only through the blood of your son, Jesus. And this morning, this Easter morning, we are so thankful that you loved us enough to spend your wrath against your son. And then you showed to us all that his offering was sufficient. You were satisfied by raising him from the dead. This Sunday, like every Sunday, we give you thanks for raising your son Jesus and giving us new life. Now, Father, we ask you by the agency of your Holy Spirit to speak to us through the speaker and to illuminate these truths um, by this self-same Holy Spirit to each one of us. To the glory of his name we pray. Amen. I'm sure most of you have heard of Casper the Friendly Ghost. He's the protagonist in uh, the famous studio theatrical animation by the same name. Sorry, Bill, I forgot. Um, Casper is a pleasant, personable, translucent personality, and he's often criticized by his three uh, wicked uh, uncles, the ghostly trio. There was 55 theatrical cartoons made of Casper the Friendly Ghost between 1945 and 1959, and a lot of cartoons since that time, since 1952. So Casper as you know, is a friendly ghost. He has this New York accent, and he inhabits this haunted house, along with the, the full community of ghosts that are in this haunted house together, and they delight in scaring the living. However, in case I didn't mention it, Casper's a friendly ghost, and so he strikes out on his own because he doesn't want to scare the living, he wants to make friends. He's kind of a nonconformist among ghosts. So he'd rather make friends, and so he heads out, and in every episode, he encounters somebody, whether it's a uh, a rooster, a mole, a cat, a mouse by the name of Herman. Uh, who else does he run into? I forget. A, a group of hens. But, you know, in each case, uh, they look at Casper and then suddenly come to the realization that this is a ghost. And in every case, it's a ghost. And then they bolt to get out of the way. See, ghosts are terrifying to the living. Well, except for Casper, because like I mentioned, he's a, he's a friendly ghost. Remember Casper, the friendliest ghost, the friendliest ghost you'll know? Though the grown-ups might look at him with fright, the children all love him so. So I mention that because there are churches and church members today who think that it really doesn't matter if Jesus was physically resurrected from the dead. Uh, he left us a good example. He died for our sins. Uh, he taught us some great lessons. So it's not really important to them if Jesus came back physically, if he was resurrected physically, because they believe he came back spiritually. So to them, Jesus is like Casper, the friendly ghost. Now, the enemies of the cross uh, have always uh, worked to try to undermine the real physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, because it's just this simple. If Jesus did not physically rise from the dead, then you can't believe his words. And you can't believe the testimony of the apostles. And you can't believe the testimony of the New Testament. And you can't believe the validity of the Old Testament, which predicted that he would rise from the dead. In fact, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then Christianity is totally worthless and the whole thing collapses. I think a lot of non-believers understand that better than believers, the importance, the centrality of the physical, literal resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if it's true, Christianity is true. 
then the Old Testament prophecies are true, then the eyewitness testimonies about Jesus are true, then the gospel is true, then salvation is real, then Christ is our Savior, then God is our God. It's just that essential. The whole business of the Christian gospel either stands or falls on this one question, did Jesus really physically resurrect from the dead? If that's true, everything else is true. And that's why Paul, when he wrote to the Romans in Romans 10, 9, said, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Salvation doesn't depend on the resurrection of Jesus. Salvation is proved by the resurrection of Jesus. It proves that God looks upon the, the offering that Jesus made and he accepts it. How would we know that God was satisfied? He is propitiated. His wrath against sin was satisfied unless Jesus was raised back from the dead. That, so because he's resurrected, we know that we have a suitable sacrifice. We know that we have a, a fitting perfect sacrifice, and that God says, I'm satisfied. It's enough. There's peace between man and God now. So the resurrection is that critical. And it is so critical that each one of the gospel writers focuses so much attention on the reality of the resurrection. And of course, usually at an Easter celebration, um, we're, we're given all kinds of evidences for an empty tomb. But the gospel writers not only look at the evidences for the resurrection from the view of an empty tomb, but they also give us evidences of the resurrection from eyewitnesses, people who actually saw him and encountered him. And all of the gospels look at the, the evidence of the angelic announcement. All of the gospels look at the, the witness of the women who first saw Jesus. That's significant because a woman is not considered in their culture to be credible. So if a woman said something, you could go... I don't know if I believe that or not. You know how women are. But it, the fact that the Gospels focus on the testimony of the women, and then what we're going to focus on today, the testimony that every single person that encountered Jesus didn't believe it. They didn't expect it. They weren't looking for a resurrection. Every single one of them focuses on this, this critical disbelief that everyone had when they met the risen Jesus. Now, that's important because... If there, was this, if there wasn't this unbelief in them, there would be the temptation later on for people to say, well, you wanted it to be true so badly, you imagined it to be true. You wanted there to be a resurrection, a physical re resurrection, that you, you virtually actualized that in, in your minds. You, you made it a reality because you wished it would come to pass. And yet all four gospel writers focus on the attention that they did not believe. They weren't expecting. And when they met the, the risen Jesus, it, they, it took some while before their unbelief is turned to faith. Today is Easter Sunday, and, and that's great because you know, we, we celebrate the resurrected Jesus Christ. But the reality is that every single Sunday when we come together on the first day of the week and not on the Sabbath, the last day of the week, every single Sunday, we are commemorating that Jesus was raised from the dead on the first day of the week, that Jesus came back to life. And so every single Sunday, not just Easter Sunday, we gather together to thank God that he raised Jesus back from the dead. We hold fast to the confessions that we, that we have that, that at a certain time, in a certain place, at a certain space, the reality of this man dying on the cross and the reality of this same man being resurrected from the dead. For us, the, all of our faith 
hangs on that reality that on the third day, the Lord Jesus rose from the dead. So why do we gather as Christians apart from the rest of the secular society? Why do we gather every Sunday when the rest of the culture ignores this? Why do we make this confession that there is forgiveness from our sins, that there is eternal life to be had? Our reply is just this, that it hangs on the reality of the risen, resurrected Jesus. Because if he has not risen from the death, then what faces us at our death is total annihilation. But because he has raised from the dead, the reality is that when we die, and we will die, our existence is not snuffed out. It doesn't cease to be. Because Jesus lives, the promise is we also shall live. So why do we believe that? What's the evidence for such faith? Is it just wishful thinking? Is it some desperation that we have, some vague awareness that there should be more to life than, the, than what we are experiencing now? Well, the first reason for our belief in the resurrection of Jesus is that, as we've seen in the past, that there is an empty tomb. And that's not my focus today. The other reason is that we are convinced that Jesus rose from the dead because of the many people who met Jesus after the resurrection. In fact, in the New Testament, there are 10 different accounts of people, um, uh, Jesus appearing to groups of people. So um, the first is to Mary Magdalene. The second is to the other women who were there. Third is to Cleopas and another traveling companion on their way from Jerusalem to Emmaus. I'll touch briefly on that today. The fourth is to Peter. Uh, the fifth is to 10 apostles disciples who were in Jerusalem who met with some other women and the two that I've just mentioned, and that's our focus for today, the meeting in Jerusalem. So all of those, those first five, they all happened on the first Sunday, the very first Easter. But following that Sunday, the next Sunday, Jesus also appears to the 11, this time including Thomas, who wasn't there in the account we're going to look at today. Um, later, Jesus appeared to seven disciples on the the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, then he appeared to 500 people on the hills above Galilee, um, ninth to James, the, the half-brother of Jesus. And then finally, um, he appeared to the 11 at the, at the Ascension on the Mount of Olives. So here in the Gospel, there are people who actually saw him and not just look at him from a distance. This is not looking at the Pope when he stands at the top of the, uh, the balcony on St. Peter's Basilica. They didn't just see him from a distance. These are people who interacted with him. These are people who talked with him, who dialogued back and forth with him, who touched him. In some cases, people who ate with him. See, ghosts don't do that. And so in all of these New Testament appearances that happened over a period of six weeks, all of these appearances are very unghost-like. They're, they're very physical and very real. So we talk about those two people, Cleopas and his companion, walking in the bright Mediterranean sun for several hours while they travel seven miles together. This is not a brief twilight experience where some shadowy figure passes through. This is where they really interact with an individual. They spend a few hours with him, talking with him. They're looking at him straight on. 
Then there's the five women, and of course, and the 11 men, and seven men, and 500 people all at once, all of them looking at him. They, they come near him. They, they touch him. They talk with him. They, they eat with him. They ask him questions. Clearly, whatever Jesus is at this point, he's not a ghost. He's very un-ghost-like, friendly or otherwise. Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 24. Let's pick it up in verse 33. Again, Luke is giving an eyewitness account of two people who saw the risen Lord on the first Easter, the first Sunday. Uh, the account really begins in verse 13 of chapter 24 of Luke. These two disciples are on their way back to Emmaus. Um, they, they have been that morning with the other disciples, and they have already heard the testimony of the women, including Mary Magdalene, that he's raised from the dead that they saw Jesus alive and well, and they don't believe it. They don't consider their testimony credible. They think it's nonsense. Um, they have no expectation of a resurrection, and so they don't believe it no matter what these women say. And so these two discouraged, disappointed disciples decide to go home. Um, they had higher aspirations for Jesus. He didn't pan out, so they're, they're going home discouraged. Um, the duo of discouraged, disappointed disciples decide to depart to a distant domicile, 1,000 decameters distant. <laughs> Whatever. At any rate, they're walking along because they've given up hope on Jesus, and they're on this seven-mile journey. This was something when I was a kid it was real popular to do on Easter Sundays, that you would go on the walk to Emmaus, and you would consider the claims of Christianity as you walked along. So these guys are walking along, and what do you suppose they're talking about? Well, they're talking about Jesus, because that's what everybody's been talking about since he came last week with his triumphal entry, all the expectations that they had. And they're talking about, well, what happened? How did everything go bad? You know, why, did things, why did things go south? They're walking along, and Jesus is the topic of their, their conversation. And while they're talking about Jesus, Jesus catches up to them and starts talking with them. What are you guys talking about? We're talking about Jesus. They don't know that they're talking to Jesus about Jesus. Notice that he's not startling to them. He doesn't appear angelic or holy. There's nothing about his appearance that, that uh, makes him stand out. He's, he's completely unremarkable. In fact, they're looking right at him, and you know what they found remarkable about him? Nothing. Nothing. He looked completely normal. They're looking straight at him. The sun is fully on him. They're talking with him for hours. And so they begin to describe Jesus to Jesus. Verse 19, he being a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people and the chief priests and the rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him and, and were so disappointed. We had hoped. We had hoped that he was the redeemer of Israel. Now, Christ wants them to understand something that they have missed, and he jumped down to verse 25, and Jesus begins to explain to them, wasn't it necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Well, they hadn't thought about that. They had a particular idea of what the Messiah was going to be like, the redeemer, and Jesus didn't do what they expected, and that's why they're so discouraged. Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, 
He explained to them the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. The things that he's explaining to them is that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer. What about the suffering stuff of the Old Testament? How do you fit that into your understanding of what the Messiah is supposed to be like? Anyway, it, it comes to the end of the day. And as, it, as, they, as they're coming to the end of the day, they, they finally figure out who their traveling companion is. And then suddenly he's gone. Verse 31 their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened this, to us the scripture? Verse 33, remember they're seven miles away from Jerusalem. Verse 33, they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11 and those who were with them gathering together saying that the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. And that's what the other disciples were saying. Then they told what had happened to them on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of bread. Verse 36, and here's where we start our text today. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. So Luke is describing the buzzing conversation that's taking place in this room um, when Cleopas and his companion get there. And so they're quizzing, you know, what have you heard? What have you seen? They're, they're trying to get caught up in the information. Cleopas wants to know, well, since they've been gone, Jesus has appeared to Simon Peter. Peter, what did you see? What was it like? What did he say? And then they want to know from Cleopas and his companion, well, what did you see? You know, what, what, did, what happened to you? See, I want you to notice, this is not the scene of a group of conspirators. This is not the scene of some uh, shell-shocked, traumatized men and women. This is a group of friends that are getting together with some phenomenally good news that they don't know how to process. This is super good news, but they don't want, to, they don't know how to, to deal with it. And so they're, they're talking with one another about this. They're, it's, it's a, too amazing to be true. And then verse 36, suddenly Jesus stands among them. I think what inquiring minds want to know at this point is how does he get into the room? Because John tells us that the Jews were hiding for fear, that these disciples were hiding for fear of the Jews in a locked room. And so there's all kinds of fanciful explanations. How does Jesus get in the room if they're locked inside the room? One explanation is that remember when Peter is, when we were studying in Acts, Peter's in jail, an angel comes and the door unlocks itself. Remember that? So perhaps Jesus approaches the room and he has the lock unlock itself and he comes in. The other alternative is that Jesus dematerializes, passes through the wall and rematerializes and a good evidence for that would be, you know, we talk about the case of the empty tomb, you know, what is not truly empty, what did they see when they look in the tomb and they see the, the coverings where Jesus had been wrapped up in these coverings and they see the face mask folded and lying up by, the, by itself and so that was certainly um, incline us to think that he passes through the, the bandages. If that's the case, if Jesus passes through the bandages, then there's no big deal about him passing through a wall or a locked door to be within the disciples. The point is, Luke doesn't, sell, doesn't tell us whether he dematerialized and reappeared or whether he had the door unlock itself and came through, because that's not important to Luke. That's not the, the thing that he wants us to understand. He wants us to understand 
that they didn't expect him and he's there. So we should be very careful because the, about trying to say what the Bible doesn't say. We get into trouble when we add into our own conclusions where the scripture is silent. Well, let's just focus on the fact, not how he got into the room, but that he was in the room and it scares the snot out of him. And so what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say to them when, when he suddenly appears among them? He says, Shalom Aleichem, peace be with you. He's not saying, by the way, hi, how are you? You know, that's not what he's saying with saying peace be with you. But you know what this is? This is a perfect picture of what happens here every single Lord's Day we get together. This is the message. When Jesus says, peace between you, a sinner who have violated God's righteous requirements and a God who loves you. There's peace between you. So here's, here's Peter, who's denied Jesus three times. He made great boasts about how he would never walk out on him. Here's these other disciples who also promised, whatever happens, we're ready to die with you. We'll never leave you. We'll never forsake you. And yet, every one of them bailed out when things got difficult. All of them were proven to be backsliders and cowards when things got difficult. And yet, imagine what it meant to them for Jesus to speak these words of peace between himself and them and between God and them. It's a pretty significant thing that he's declaring right now. He's, 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 he's speaking of reconciling, pardoning mercy. It's just amazing to me when we consider the grace of our Lord Jesus. You know, when we when we least deserve to be forgiven, and what we deserve is to be at least rebuked or punished or disciplined, and yet he comes and he speaks peace to us. You know, it's just the Lord's delight to show mercy. He's, he's far more willing to remember our sins no more than, than we are to ask him for it. He's more ready to pardon us than we are to be willing to acknowledge that we need to be pardoned. Amazing love. How can it be? Well, let's move on. Verse 37. They were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a ghost. They thought they saw a spirit. Well, yeah, of course you're going to be amazed and startled and alarmed. Yeah, that's, who's not going to be frightened in a case like that? I mean, there's something not only in every child's heart, but every adult's heart, um, which is very much afraid of the unknown and very much terrified by shadowy figures in the night, by beings from another realm. Those things terrify us. I'm not saying that's wrong. You know, we're, we're, we're afraid of these specters from beyond the grave. And so they behave like every normal person would when they're confronted by a ghost or like all of the adults when they encountered Casper the Friendly Ghost. A g -g 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 ghost! That's the, the reaction that they are having here, too. They're terrified. Verse 38. And Jesus said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, do you have anything here to eat? 
And he gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Can we just at least agree at this point that they did not expect to see Jesus? And the reason for that is they knew he was dead. They watched him die three days ago. If you're dead, you don't come back to life. And so the only conclusion that they can logically come to that we could have come to in a case like that because they knew Jesus was dead, now they're seeing this specter, the only conclusion that they can logically come to is that they're seeing the ghost of Jesus. And it terrifies them. But Jesus is assuring them he is not a ghost, friendly or otherwise. He is very much alive, and he asks them to check it out for themselves. He's not asking for blind faith. No one asks you, Christian, to believe these truths and make a leap of faith. We believe because there is good evidence to the effect. And so Jesus says, hey, check it out for yourself. Touch me. Look. Look at the holes in my hands and in my feet. See the pain that I have suffered to obtain your pardon. Grab hold of me. He urges them, touch me and see. Here's an opportunity for them to be certain that they are not seeing a ghost. And that's important because certainly in the years to follow, people are going to scorn them, saying whatever you saw wasn't real. Maybe you saw a ghost. Maybe you think what you saw was real, but they're not going to believe it. They're just going to be convinced that this, whatever that they encountered or experienced was some ghostly apparition. So Jesus says, you know, Touch, touch me, look at my hands, look at my feet. And, they, and then we're told, still they don't believe, but this time because of joy and amazement. This is now news too good to be true. And so there's a maelstrom of emotions at this point. There's, there's the, the, the hope and the frustration. There's, there's unbelieving and, and believing. There's startled, startlement, is that a word? They're startled and yet they feel joy. All these mixed emotions that are going through them, it all seems to be good to be true. I mean, how is this possible? Who comes back from being dead? Well, the answer is Jesus does. The one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. He comes back from the dead. And he has raised others from the dead. He told them that he would rise. Well, then the next question that I want to know is, well, what kind of a body does Jesus have? So it comes back from the dead, and his body is somehow, there's some connection to the old body, but yet it's different in some way too. What kind of body does Jesus have? Well, for one thing, we know that he had a real body, not a ghostly body. He, it's, it's a real body, and every one of the gospel writers is insistent on that, and they give us many examples why we are talking about, and they are talking to a very real person. And evidence is like he speaks to them. This is not just some moaning and groaning and rattling of the chains. They dialogue with him. They, they ask questions. They get responses. He, he, he responds to their fright, and he tells them not to be troubled or, or to doubt. He then appeals to their senses. He says, touch me, feel me, hold me, look at the nail holes in my hands and feet. You know, look for yourself. Um, a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I do. And then he shows them his hands and feet, and in verse 41, he says, do you have anything here to eat? Verse 42, they gave him a piece of broiled fish. This doesn't mean that 
um, that it's necessarily hot and sizzling off the grill. It just means that it's pre-prepared foods. And then they all watch. They hand him a plate of smoked salmon and they watch. And you would too, because they want to see if it falls through when he eats it, you know. <laughs> but he eats the fish and he cleans up his plate and he hands the plate back to him. And, and it's very clear this is not an illusion. This, this actually happens. And, of course, the context reminds us ghosts don't eat. They don't need to eat. There's no purpose for it. In fact, they can't eat. Uh, verse 44, then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scripture. So he's explaining the passion, his abuse, his crucifixion, and he's explaining the resurrection in this dynamic context of the Old Testament scriptures. He says, look, all of this was told to you comes from the scriptures, and he delineates specifically the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Um, Leon Morris says, the solemn division of scripture into the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, the three divisions of the Hebrew Bible, indicate that there is no part of Scripture that does not bear witness to Jesus. And again, we have to understand that the reason that he's appealing to Scripture at this point <coughs> is that he does not want them to base their faith, their faith on experience. He does not want them to think that they are a special illuminated group because they have seen what other people haven't seen. He doesn't want them to be this Illuminati he wants them to understand that the truth is not based on their experience. He doesn't ask to have faith based on a miracle. He's saying, look at the massive testimony of Scripture and rest your faith on the Word of God. So he presents the reality of the resurrection in, in the perspective of Scripture, in the Law, the Prophets, and Psalms. Verse 36, he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should sh suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that re repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his names to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending you the promise of my Father, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So this is a really important text, because here you have the message of the gospel, the strategy of the gospel, the scope of the gospel, the commission of the gospel, and the power of the gospel. Here's a five-fold commission to every Christian, including you. <laughs> Message, strategy, scope, commission, and power. But now I'm talking about another list of five. This, this <laughs> next list of five that you haven't gotten yet. This is... This is the five elements that dominate the mission or the commission of the church. And the first is that we as Christians are called to preach or proclaim the gospel. Now, you know, we'll see that, or we have seen that because we're, this church is going through the study of the book of Acts. So we'll see that actual commission, carrying the gospel, preaching the gospel, when we get uh, further on, that, that the church is proclaiming the Jesus' resurrection through the preaching of the Word. So it's an honorable ministry, the preaching of the gospel. But second, 
the, the, the message of the gospel begins with repentance. It does not begin with God has a wonderful plan for your life. Because if you are not saved, God does not have a wonderful plan for your life. If you go to eternity without Christ, whatever happens to you is not a wonderful plan. The message of the gospel begins with this call to repentance. Now, you've often heard of repentance described in the Greek term metanoia, which means to, uh, to turn or uh, turn away or have a change of mind. Um, obviously, Jesus is not referring to this Greek concept of repentance to his Hebrew friends in this Hebrew setting. He rather is referring to the Hebrew concept of repentance, which means to change your course. Stop doing what you are doing and turn to God. And you come to know him by changing one's direction in life. So third, what is offered in the gospel is forgiveness of sins, that there, there is no longer an obstacle between a righteous God and a sinful man. That's important because you ask anybody else in any other religion this question, what do you do with your guilt? And Christianity alone has an answer to that. What do you do with your guilt? God has forgiven us. God has shown that he is willing to be gracious, that it is in nature to forgive. And he cancels our debt, not willy-nilly, not capriciously. He cancels our debt because he has already spent his wrath and charged Jesus in our place. Fourth, the authority for our presentation of the gospel rests in the proclamation in Jesus' name. And then we begin to see that again, and there's a major theme that uh, occurs in the gospel, of, or I mean in the, in the book of Acts. Uh, all of the events that we have been describing in our study of Acts, these um, baptisms and healings and, and, uh, uh, and forgiveness, they, they all come to us in Jesus' name. And so we are to note here that th these come to us because of his personal presence, not because of some authority which has just been bestowed upon us, that these things all happen because Christ is present and he is represented in all of these events. So the risen Lord carries these things out himself. Fifth, the message we are told is for all nations and that the preaching will begin in Jerusalem. It took 20 chapters of Acts before the disciples begin to get this point. Because up until that point, they're thinking, the gospel goes to all Jews who are within all nations out in the diaspora, the dispersion. And it's not until 20 chapters into Acts it begins to dawn on the church, no, he's talking about the gospel goes out to all people, all humanity, all ethne. Peter, you know, caught on much sooner. You have this vision of, that, that Peter has about the gospel going out to to everyone, it was, what, what is that, Acts 10, 30, someplace like that. But at any rate, the, the church doesn't get it until much later until finally they go, oh, this good news is for all people in, in, in every place. Now, it might not seem all that important to you that Jesus is not a ghost, even a friendly ghost, um, because, you know, here we are gathered together in church and we're talking about Jesus, but we don't see him. 
He's not physically present. And in any case, he's here with us in spirit. And whatever Jesus does, he conducts his business in spirit form. You know, whether it's, whether it's uh, forgiveness or you know, whatever he's, do, he's doing, whatever the business that Jesus is now doing, he's doing it without a body, right? So, and so we say, well, what difference does it make if he's resurrected? The important part was that he died for our sins and God was satisfied. It doesn't matter if Jesus is now just a ghost. It does matter. And it's highly relevant to us, not simply because it proves God is satisfied with the offering. It is also highly significant to us because it is a picture of our destiny too. It is a picture of what our being will be like beyond the grave, what our resurrected bodies are going to be like. Somehow, in the resurrected body of Jesus, we see the properties, we see the, uh, the powers, the abilities that are promised to us, too, in the resurrected Jesus. And so we look at uh, Philippians 3.20 and... Paul says, we eagerly wait a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. There's a connection there between whatever the resurrected Jesus is like and what we will be like. And perhaps the best treatise in the Bible uh, on what our resurrected form will be like comes from... uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you want to follow, I'm going to read this, it's a really long passage, but 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in 35, Paul talks about what our bodies will be like. Because there's a question, you know, what waits for us beyond the grave? Is our destiny to be disembodied spirits in heaven? We leave this body, it decomposes, and we get to be ghosts in some ethereal plane. Is that where we're headed? Is that what our hope is? Is that what Christianity teaches? Uh, Let's look. Listen to what Paul says. Again, I'm in uh, 1535. But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? That's a good question. We want to know that too. How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow... You don't plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he's determined, and each kind of seed he gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds have another, fish have another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of heavenly bodies is of one kind, the splendor of earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, the stars another, and stars differ from star in splendor so will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable is raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. As is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. 
And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. That's a good sign for the nursery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. <laughs> Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the imperishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So here we have the apostles along with disciples. There's a group of perhaps 20 people that are gathered together here, and they not only see the reality that Jesus, who was now who was once dead is now alive, but they are looking, whether they realize it or not, they're looking at their own future. They're looking at their destiny. They're looking at what they would become, this new embodied life in God's new world, a physical body on a physical world, a physical earth. Let me close with this statement, this uh, quote from Bob Deffenbaugh. He says, as I read the Gospel of Luke and then the book of Acts, hey, we're doing that too, right? As I read the Gospel of Luke and then the book of Acts, I can rather easily understand why the disciples felt and acted as they did in the Gospel of Luke. I can even somewhat grasp how their feelings and actions changed in the book of Acts. But what troubles me is that the church today seems to act more like the disciples in Luke than they did the, the apostles in Acts. Is it possible that we need to undergo the same change of heart, mind, and action that the disciples did? Are we so much like them? I think so. How then must we change to be more like the apostles in Acts than to be continuing like the disciples in Luke? What must change? First of all, I think that we believe far more than the disciples did that Jesus had to be rejected, put to death, and rise again. I don't think our problem is understanding what the Old Testament taught about Jesus. To take this a step further, I don't think that we have a great, under, great problem understanding what the Gospels teach concerning the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I think our problem is that in spite of all that we know about Jesus, we don't really believe it. Our profession, our creed, what we say we believe, may be post-Pentecost, but our practice, our conduct, is pre-Pentecost. We live more like the disciples lived in Luke than, than they live like in Acts. The facts we know, but do we really believe them? The power we profess, but do we really practice it? In short, I see the problem exposed here in Luke, but the solution is yet to be worked out. It's solved in Acts. While a belief in the resurrection of Christ is vital, there is yet more that is needed. Jesus was not only alive, Jesus was with them in their very midst. 
he would be ever more present with them and in them through his Holy Spirit. But this was a promise that was still to come. The resurrection of Christ is so much sweeter when we come to realize that him whom God raised from the dead is not only alive, but present by means of his Spirit. May we come to grasp his presence in us individually and corporately. Herein is joy and power. As Paul will later put it, that if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells within you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells within you. The greatest reality of the resurrection that can be seen today is the reality that a body which is incapable of living in a way that pleases God and fulfills his commandments, which is subject to the power of sin, can be given life by the same Spirit that raised the dead body of our Lord to life. The Spirit who raised Christ from the dead can give life to our dead bodies. Here is the reality of the resurrection which the disciples were soon to experience. May we experience it too. Now, I mean no disrespect to Jesus by comparing him to Casper the Friendly Ghost. I mean rather to compare our attitudes towards Jesus and even more, our hope in the resurrection. Jesus was not a ghost, and he is not now. The reality is that somewhere right now, there is a physical body like the one standing before you, that Jesus is forever linked to this race, this species of man, this, this race of the sons of Adam. He didn't drop that body away. He will forever carry that body as his resurrected human body. He's forever linked to us that way. And while the truth is, and you fully know, that we all die and our bodies disintegrate, and that our spirits then go to be with the Lord in heaven. That's the promise. We are instantly in the Lord's presence when we die. That is not our hope. That is not the promise. That is not what Christians are basing their hope on. Our hope is in the resurrection. And that's what Easter is all about. Let's pray. Our understanding of you is much too small. And our reception of your promises, much too little. If only for this life we have hope. If eternity is snuffed out by death. We who are Christians, who believe in Jesus Christ, in his sacrifice on the cross, and his resurrection, are looking to a literal, physical resurrection, a physical life on a physical earth, like this one, but much more. Father, help us to think bigger thoughts of you and to understand a little bit more the amazing grace, your unfathomable compassion, your eagerness to put our sins away, and to receive us not only as forgiven, but as your sons and your daughters. Amazing grace, how can it be? Father, this Easter, I pray, we are firmed up in our convictions, not only that Jesus is alive 
that he's coming again, and we look forward to that day. We ask for your blessing now and your guidance. We ask that you would cause your word to ruminate in our hearts. We ask that you would bring love and joy and unity to each other as the evidence of the Spirit within us. And we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave his life for us. Amen. Let's stand and sing one more song together.